0: If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of John. It should be right there on your mind because we were there last week, right? Remember that? We were there last week. Um, again, throughout the summer, praying forward to this season, a new season beginning in September. For churches, that's the season, right? It goes September to June, and then we expect you all to take off, right? Never see you for another couple of months, and which is not true, actually. Many of you are here, which is great. Uh, But we're always praying and and looking forward to going, Lord, where do you want us to be? Where do we need to be to hear from you? How will this help us as a church, bless us as a church? And so as I was looking forward to that, honestly, only up until a few weeks ago, I was like, I I don't know where to go (laughs) at the beginning of September because I was looking at Luke, which we will get back into at the beginning of October. And I'm like, hmm, the next passage in Luke that we're going to be doing at the beginning of October, fair warning. It's pretty dark. (laughs) It's a pretty challenging passage, which is great, but, you know, for, you know, fall launch Sunday, getting back at it, but really what happened was the Lord put it on my heart that especially after what we looked at the last two Sundays, the Bible, the Bible being the story of God and the word of God, and of course, we're going to continue in the Bible because we are a Bible teaching and Bible believing church, (sighs) but I just thought the Holy Spirit put on my heart, you know what? We need to follow the way of Jesus. As a church, as we go forth in this community, how did Jesus do it? And when I look back at the launch of this church 10 years ago, that's exactly what we did. We began in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and figured out the beginning stuff. But then we looked at how did Jesus go about planting and starting his church, discipling and calling men and women to his way of doing things. And so that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We're going to look at a series called The Way of Jesus. Um, For those of you who have been checking out The Rock over the last few Sundays, our hope is to show you that Jesus not only has a specific way about him, he had and he does have a specific way about him, but he has this truly unique way of leading people to see him for who he truly is. And in doing that, revealing our own hearts to us about who we also are. And that should expose our real, deep, and abiding need for Him. For Him. So when you read the Bible, especially with others, you certainly learn that there are two things about the way of Jesus that are quite unique. There, there are two things about His way. First, the people who really didn't like him in the Gospels. You read about him, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious guys, right? Uh, It's it's interesting. They want to get rid of him, and these are the people who honestly thought when the Messiah does arrive, when the Messiah, the Savior of the world does arrive, he's going to be like uber-pleased with them. He's going to be like fawning over them. He's going to be like trying to recruit them immediately because they are doing things right. Oops. (laughs) No. They found out that was quite different. The way of Jesus was like, yeah, guys, no. Um, No, no, that's not my way. Secondly, though, it was this. The second group was these these outsiders, the unclean, the unrighteous sinners that the uber-religious called these people, the tax collectors, the fishermen, the broken, the disregarded, even the women, Lord forbid, the women, These were the people that Jesus not only loved being with and dining with and eating with. (laughs) And that was one of the reasons why the other group, the uber-religious, were like, that's just not right. (laughs) But it's the other reason why these people were like very enamored with the way of Jesus. They were so surprised that he loved being with them. So he had quite the way about him when you think about it. So for the next three weeks, my hope is that we will discover together the way of Jesus. And, and my hope is related to, it's not just about finding that out for you and I so we can be comfortable and, and enjoy our Christian walk, but so that we can be better equipped to go and, and reach people in this world who don't know him and are like the people who he came for and so my hope is that we will see how he invited people into his life. He had a specific way of doing that. How he called people to commit to his way of life. And then finally, how he sent them on their way, which was his way, the way of Jesus. So our outline for today is this. Today is about come and see. I hope to show you three things that we see from the text that we're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 35. Number one, come with your mind. Come with your mind. Number two, come with your friends. And number three, come expecting to be surprised. (laughs) Very surprised. Let me read our text, verses 35 to 51, then I'm going to pray one more time and we will dive in. Read with me if you have your Bibles with you. John, the apostle, writing, The next day, again, John, the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was, it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard, Je- who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of Jonah, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God descending and de- ascending, pardon me, and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for this text, this eyewitness account and story that John has captured and written so that we would know these things from you, Lord Jesus. Just pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would reveal your heart and your mind in these matters. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts. You would encourage us. You would bless us. You would challenge us. We pray today that we would just hear from you in a really magnificent way. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So number one in your outline, come with your mind. So last week we learned a a few things about John, right? The Apostle John. Uh, Like all of the other gospel writers... Uh, their perspective and backgrounds have a lot lot to do with their point of view, the way that they write. We know that there are four Gospels that have been written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The amazing thing about them is that they are incredibly unified when it comes to the facts uh, of the matter, of things that actually took place. But the Holy Spirit has used these men and inspired them in such a way that not only are their personalities showing in the text, but, but their hearts as well. And so they're writing their, uh, their, their books and their Gospels in particular for particular people in mind. And so there are definitely unique perspectives that each author, author brings, and essentially to thre- two things, who Jesus is, and secondly, the audience that they desire to reach with the message of the Gospel. We know that the first Gospel was written by Matthew, and he was, of course, a tax collector. wasn't really well-liked by his fellow Jews because of that that didn't deter him from having a heart for them. And so his gospel, when you read it, it's pretty clear that that he is is wanting to reach his fellow Hebrews, his fellow Israelites, with the fact that Jesus is the king, the long-awaited king who is the rightful heir of David's throne and the rightful racial heir of the Abrahamic covenant, John's gospel, on the other hand, is reminiscent of Luke's in this way. He is Jewish, but his heart is for the Greek, the Gentile, the pagan. It would be true to say that he is a true evangelist. So he wants to reach the unchurched, those who are far from God and have been pushed far from God, frankly, by his own people. So John's Gospel is different from the other three, which are called synoptic Gospels because they are synopses of the events that have taken place. And it's different because, first of all, he doesn't begin with the incarnation or the story of the birth of Jesus. He just launches right in, right? And the Word became flesh, as we'll see, and dwelt among us. But secondly, it's also because of the deep theological emphasis around the main point that he focuses on, and that is this. It is the deity of Jesus Christ. He's preaching and writing into a a culture where there are many, many gods. And he wants to make it very clear that Jesus is the Word of God, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one true God. And so that's his emphasis, emphasis. So last week we read the beginning verses of John's gospel. Of course, you all know them. In the beginning was the Word. And we learned, of course, that this is not a repeat of Genesis 1, but really is a prologue of before that, speaking about God, the Word, being in heaven with God and being God. We also learned that John was a very well-educated Jewish man. He was well-educated in the Jewish faith, uh, in that religion, in the traditions of that faith, but also the Greek language and specifically the secular Gentile culture. Experts agree when they read his gospel, the Greek in it is really high-level Greek. And it's not to impress, but it's because he, again, wants to reach the audience in particular, and their ears are tuned to the language. And this is being written in the Greek language, and of course he spoke it as well, and probably Hebrew and Aramaic as well. And so this is the key. And so the key takeaway was that his use of the Greek language was and is masterful and especially to the ears of the Greek. Jews already, of course, believe that Elohim, in the plural of Genesis, created the heavens and the earth, no question we learned last week. Greeks, on the other hand, if they were going to be convinced, required and preferred logic. They preferred reasoning and argument in order to arrive at knowledge or belief. And so when they heard the word for word, logos in the Greek, Immediately, they were like, speak in our language. This must mean that the argument you're going to make in your book, in this gospel, is going to be reasonable. It's going to make sense. It's going to be proven. That would have been their expectation. So we see that John's using language that appeals to his audience and to the cultural moment that they are living in with the purpose of presenting Jesus to them as the one true God. His invitation to them, then is this, come with your minds. There's just no question when they heard him or when they read him writing these things, and of course, they would have been hearing him preach in those days too, they knew he was saying, okay, listen, you don't need a frontal lobotomy to have faith. Come here, bring your minds. Let's do it this way. The Apostle Paul did that, of course, as well on Mars Hill, right? When he debated and tried to prove There is a one true God. So we need to also remember this. John is writing an eyewitness account. This is a very important point. But it's approximately 40 to 50 years after the ascension of Jesus. right? So the whole life of Jesus has taken place. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Church has been planted. It's 40 to 50 years later. John is pretty much the only apostle probably still living at this point. He's pretty old. He's like maybe 85, 90 years of age. But the the amazing thing is, still at this age, you can you can hear the evangelist's heart in him. He wants people to trust and believe in Jesus, and particularly the people in the culture of that day. So we see more evidence of his appeal to the Greek when he declares that the word has arrived when he uses the language of an eyewitness. Remember that in John 1.14, I'll put it on screen for you. He said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And look, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. You you see, to, to the Greek, the idea of mystical feelings and experience being somehow proving there is a God or God's, That didn't add up. That did not impress them. It didn't rate very highly in their world of logic, reasoning, and facts. But one thing did. Eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts were a great tool of argument in that day. Why? They could be verified. They could be verified. And the amazing thing about this point in time when John is writing this, every single one of the apostles, except John at this point, has been put to death for the claim that they saw these things. They would not back off this. This is verifiable evidence These were all verifiable. In those days, there were thousands who had seen and witnessed what Jesus had been doing. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, you all probably know this and remember this famous portion where he's he's giving a defense, he's, he's proclaiming the gospel, and this is of what is of first importance, that Jesus Christ lived, was crucified, died, buried, risen from the dead. Risen from the dead was a key. And in chapter 15, he said this, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, 5,000 could have been, 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go check it out for yourself. Though some have fallen asleep. And as John continues in his text in chapter one of the gospel toward our text for today, we, we read the John the Baptist in verse 31 saying, look, a very important Greek word. Look, I can see. I witness the Lamb of God. Verse 32, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit of God descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then in verse 34, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Eyewitness accounts. At the end of the day, what John wants to communicate as we go through this text today to his Greek audience, to you, to me, is that, listen, He's ascended now. I'm writing this 40 to 50 years later. But you too can see Him like we saw Him in the flesh, if you'll just bring your mind and you will listen to Him and to His Spirit. You too can see. And that brings us to our text for today. Verse 35 and 36 say this, The next day, again, John, the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. I should point out, it's kind of a funny thing, but this is like the second time that John has said, Look, Son of God, but this is pretty much, it takes a couple times for them to go, Oh, okay, and they go, right? Just a little aside, that's what happens. So now as we approach this long passage, we're going to focus on the essentials because there's a lot here. But I wanted us to see in preparation that John's use of language and the ordering events is saying this to his audience. I want you to come, I want you to see, and I want you to use your minds. It's a good thing. So now I ask you this, honestly, when you think about it, this is a 2,000-year-old text, almost. It's almost a 2,000-year-old text but is it really that far removed from our day and cultural moment? Do we not live in a day and an age when those who do not believe the Bible do not believe that it is the Word of God, or let's just cut to the chase, that he, there is even a God, are we not living in a day when people are demanding, prove it to me? You know, It's, it's on you, Christian. You, you need to prove this to me. Using facts and evidence it not very similar? I think sometimes we look at this amazing collection of books and we go, you know, it's, it's, it's just so old. Like, how could it possibly be relevant today? Well, I would suggest to you, I'd argue, that we most certainly are in almost the exact same situation today. And so if that's true, how should we then as a church go about reaching our friends, sharing the gospel, inviting them to come and see... Well, maybe the same way Jesus did. Maybe this text can actually show that to us and we can see his way of doing that. When we follow the way of Jesus by encouraging them to come and see. Next, we read that a few of John's disciples heard what he had said about Jesus and began to follow him. Verses 38 and 39 say this Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? what are you looking for? Not, not what are your questions, creation, evolution. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? That's a great question. And he said, come and you will see. I don't know about you, but I, I've I've been trying to get a lot of people to come to church over my, my thirty some years, forty years of being a Christian. I haven't faithfully used this tact, <laughs> you know. Instead, it's like, oh, you want, oh, you want to argue about that? Well, oh, hey, just come and see. Come and see. Come and see what I've seen. I can't explain it to you, like in five minutes. You're going to need to come and see. It's a beautiful introduction. This is how Jesus invites all of us, to come to him. The invitation is open and completely welcoming. There's no pressure. Come, and you will see. There is, however, something implied, isn't there? We need to come when we're invited. That's pretty important. When the Holy Spirit, you're sensing, through the invitation of anyone, is saying, come, and you will see about Jesus... We need to respond. So the word right here for see is, of course, again, key to our understanding. Every Greek Gentile pagan would hear that word, and they would know something about that word that we don't. Because we we think in in Christian terms, seeing is believing. Show me your evidence. Boom, bum, one, two, three. Okay, I'm in. No, I don't believe it. This word implies something that will appear, going to appear will become visible. It implies it's going to take some time. It's going to be like drip, 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 drip. Uh Aha. Anyone ever experienced that in their coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Right? It's like you come and hear one sermon and you're like, that was brilliant. I'm in. No, it's not brilliant. Unless it's completely him. That's how it happens, along with one other thing, as we will see. So it's understood that one will need to be seeing for some time before there is understanding, let alone belief. I remember reading years ago, again, a little aside, but it was in a book. I think it was called Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, that if you wanted to be a professional tennis player, woohoo! Bianca, was that awesome yesterday? Uh, Or you wanted to be a hockey player, like a doctor, like any professional. You would need, in order to be considered expert or at least proficient in anything, you would need to spend somewhere near 10,000 hours at it, playing guitar, playing whatever it might be, before you would be proficient. (laughs) And people are like, well, I'm going to read a book and find out whether the Jesus thing is real. Or I'll come one week, you know, I'll see what's going on here. But again, how many of you in your Christian walk and life have been coming and coming and coming and coming, and then 10, 15 years later, it's like, I get that. (laughs) I know some of you. (laughs) It's taken that long for all of us, to be honest with you. So that's it. How does this look for us today is the question, I guess, that we go about doing what Jesus has commanded us to do as the church, which is to go and make disciples. Well, I would encourage you to suggest, suggest this. Jesus' invitation also shows the way to do that, doesn't it? He, he asked, he's asked, where are you staying, right, by these two disciples? Where, where are you staying? And, and, and Jesus' response, it's a very personal thing. It's like, where are you staying? Like, where's your home, Where's your house? It's not like, hey, listen, would you like to go for a coffee? Because I've got a few questions. It's not that. It's like, where are you staying? Right? Which is beautiful. Jesus' answer is equally beautiful. Because his answer is, Come to my house. <laughs> come come to my life. Come into my life. My personal space where I'm staying. And then listen, you will see. You will see. And so this is, of course, exactly what we need to do today. And that leads us naturally then, after inviting people to come with their minds, you need to come with your friends, number two. So the two came, listen, we, we read in the text previously, they came and they saw where Jesus was staying, right? And they stayed with him that day, we read. But we're told that one of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist, followed Jesus, his name was Andrew, And Andrew has a brother. And so what does Andrew do? Well, verse 41 tells us. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You're going to be called Cephas. Get over it, which means Peter. I mean, it's great, isn't it? I think it's fantastic. It's amazing. I mean, what you see here is these guys are with Jesus or Andrew's with Jesus for like six, eight hours, and he's already believing, right? And what does he want to do? Well, all he wants to do is he wants to sit at the feet of Jesus for like a whole week in a Bible study, doesn't he? No. No, he's there like six or seven hours, and he's like, I got to go get my brother, I've got to go and get my brother or my sister or my best friend. In this case, Andrew's brother is none other than Simon. This is how we're introduced to him, actually, in Scripture, which is amazing. And we know that this is who he is because Jesus, having not met him, tells us, and Simon, listen, I know who you are. There's been no introductions. He knows him. And he says, yes, (laughs) you are Simon, your father's name is John, but from now on, your name will be Cephas, which means Peter. So again, this is important. <laughs> Words are very important. And so they, these Greeks are listening, and they're going, oh, okay. Simon means one thing, but Petros, it means a tiny, little, insignificant, insignificant unstable rock, a pebble. Welcome to the family, Peter. We're going to leave that there for the moment. We'll come back to that uh, when we get to our conclusion today. But as the story continues, it's the next day and Jesus decides to head over to Galilee. And there he finds a man by the name of Philip and Jesus invites Philip to follow him, right? And so interestingly, Philip, after following Jesus, and we don't know how long in his case, whether it's a day or a few days, but the indication would be it's really not that long a period of time. He also leaves for a quick visit back to the his hometown, which is Bethsaida, which just happens to be the same hometown as Andrew and now Peter, right? And what does he go there for? Well, he has a friend and his friend's name is Nathaniel. And we read what he says to him in verse 45 and 46. He then says, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, come on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Huh. Just like Andrew, Philip says he's found Jesus, but he puts it a little differently, right? He puts it differently. He, he says to Nathaniel, we, we, we found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So at first blush, Nathaniel's reply it sounds rather dismissive, if not critical, doesn't it? Like, What, what kind of good thing could come out of Nazareth, right? Like, but we need to be careful a little bit with Nathaniel. He goes on to be quite an amazing disciple of Jesus. He's obviously a learned man because he knows his Bible. And he also knows this. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. So what's with that, right? Like what's with that? That's that's his comeback to this invitation to come see Jesus. So it's wonderful on several fronts, I think. First, Nathaniel is like a lot of people then, and I think today as well. There are people today who are like, yeah, I don't know if I, you know, like, I got to have a few things answered for me before I'm going to, you know, go to a church, you know. Or, listen, what's their theology? (laughs) Got to make sure they got the right theology before I'm even going to go there. Got to check out the website, read the Confession of Faith and everything else. Maybe listen to the sermons a couple of times. You know, this guy's very careful, very, very careful guy, and I think there's, a lot of us like that today and I think we could learn something from him. But Philip's response is great and I think we can learn something from him even more. His response is fantastic when he says, simply says, come and see. I mean clearly Philip is not miffed by this question, right? I mean he's not like, well, hey listen, I spent seven to eight hours with this guy and I'm telling you I know who he is, right? Like he's not like that at all. Or like, what are you doing? Are you questioning him? Like, he, he's, he's sharing with us that he's the son of God, and he's come here to, you know, uh, you know call people to repentance and, and preach the kingdom of God, and, and what, what are you doing? He's not like that at all. But he's also not like, yeah, you know what? Come to think of it, you're right. Pfft, forget it. You want to get a beer? He's not like that at all. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, he's like, look, I don't have the answer to that question. It didn't come up. Come and see. Just come and see. And it's a beautiful, beautiful approach. And that's one thing that we, I think, can always learn from it when we're talking to people. And I've had to struggle with this many years, uh, being the apologetic person that I am, the debater from high school that I was. You know, I'll answer all your questions, and then you'll want to come to church. Just, just come and see, would you? <laughs> Because it isn't me or the preacher that makes the difference. It's the Holy Spirit. Amen? He's the one doing the speaking and the talking. So, friends, that's all you and I, I want to encourage you, really need to do as well. We need to invite people just to come and see. Apologetics is a good thing. It's awesome. It's important to know. But sometimes, actually, more importantly, I truly believe the best thing to do with everyone you know and love, is to invite them to come and see with their minds, first of all, but secondly, to come with you. Statistics still tell us that 90% of people who've ended up in church and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ were brought by a friend. Not just brought to the first service and said, have a good time, but sat with them, went for lunch with them, answered their questions, invited them back next week, called them, texted them when they didn't see them. Point number three, come expecting surprises. Verse 47 and 48 say this. So Jesus saw Nathanael. Remember, he saw Peter, right? Coming toward him and said of him, behold, An Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. (sighs) Nathaniel's feeling pretty good at this point, right? But Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. In Bethsaida, but I'm here. As Nathanael approaches Jesus, he points at him and says, look, here comes a faithful Jew in whom I find no false thinking or deceptive ways. It's pretty good stuff, right? And the funny or interesting thing is, Nathanael doesn't disagree with him. <laughs> he's but he's interested. How do you know me? How do you know that about me and my name too? He asks Jesus. So Jesus' response is amazing and surprising, though, isn't it? Because he says to him, Nathaniel, before Philip even went to get you, I knew you, I knew who you were, I knew this thing that I just declared about you. Oh, and by the way, I know everything else about you too. And yet I still declared this about you in front of your friends and in front of witnesses. Yes, I knew who you were. This too is, friends, the way of Jesus. But let's not forget, as I said, he knows everything. It's rather clear that Nathaniel is surprised. He's very surprised, taken aback by this. He's only had a brief, how long would this take? <laughs> Two minutes of a conversation, and immediately he blurts out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Where's the party? Well, there's work to be done. But that's his response. His response. It's surprising. And th- this has to be, of course, one of those light bulb aha moments. Did he get his question answered, by the way, about Bethlehem? No. No. He got a different answer. He was surprised. He came and saw Jesus. And the same thing that happened to and for him, listen, can happen for you and I here today. It can happen for us. And the reason is because Jesus Christ has and does see Jesus you, and I. And despite everything that he saw about everyone in that day, including Peter and his doubting, (laughs) and everything he knows about you and I, because he knew us before we were born, he still loved us enough to die for us on the cross. This is surprising, isn't it? So he was just waiting, in Nathanael's case, but also in our case, for us to just come and see him, see him for his, who he really is. And then he answers Nathanael with a really big surprise ending to the whole story when he says this. Jesus then answered Nathanael, listen, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Nathanael, you're going to see greater things than these. And then he said to him, The words in the original language are actually Aramaic. Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus, by the way, is the only person in the New Testament or Old Testament ever to say amen, amen before a declaration. Why? Because everything he says is true. That's what that word means. It is true. It is so. Every once in a while, you hear me when I'm preaching going, amen? Why? Because I just said something that is apparently true. And when most of you say amen, it was obviously true. But he says it differently here. So Jesus makes Nathaniel and all of us this promise. Listen, if you come and see with your mind, if you will bring your friends to, you're going to be continually surprised about what I'm going to do in your life and in their life. But you need to be together to see that. Amen? <laughs> it was a test. You know, the greater things that he promised here did happen. They did happen, and Nathanael was one of those who saw heaven opened and angels descending on the Son of Man. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to give you a couple of practical applications from this. Actually, two lessons. One is a lesson from Nathanael... Um, maybe you came to see Jesus. And and from the very beginning of of entering church, reading reading the Bible, having someone share faith with you, maybe right right from the very beginning, you were just overwhelmed with a sense of forgiveness and love and acceptance and approval, not of your past ways, but just of you as a person. And it started off great, and then there was some work to be done maybe on your pride, Nathaniel, and so forth. I've often said to people when I I, I came to faith in Jesus Christ at 23 years of age, uh, I got a haircut because I had very long hair. I stopped smoking, all things, drinking, taking the Lord's name in vain. It was like for about eight, nine months, it was like, oh. Like, I, I definitely believed I was a saint in Jesus Christ, right? Well, 11, 12 months in, whoa, some work to be done, some work to be done. But he came and saw, and then he began to follow. But there's also some lessons from Peter, isn't there? I promised you we'd come back to him. Sometimes we come to Jesus, and we immediately sense when we hear a sermon, we like to blame the preacher for it, but it's not the preacher's fault. It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit. We, we immediately sense that our way of life, our way and our attitudes does not align with Jesus. That's unsettling. In the case of Peter, we know through his story he had some character issues, didn't he? Jesus needed to do some work in him for three and a half years, (laughs) right? But that Petros then became the man who when asked, who do people say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus declared to Peter upon that Petra, rock, solid rock. That profession of faith in me, Peter, that came out of your mouth, I will build my church. I was thinking about um, something to share with you to apply all of this to our world today and our life today. And I've come up with a very unlikely source of wisdom. Some of you are going to wonder about me and think, is, is the dizziness getting to him? But I've been following a fellow on... Uh, Facebook, and uh, online for a while. His name is John L. Cooper. Um, he is a very unlikely source. John is the lead singer of a band called Skillet, and that band is a Christian heavy metal rock band. Now, if there is such a thing as an oxymoron, that could be like, it's like country music. Okay, just kidding. Um, oh, I, don't oh, I was saving that one. But but he he writes, he's been, one of the things about him is he's a worship leader as well, and he's been writing into the moment, into our culture, and, and basically to his own brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to his friends who are unsaved, who come to his concerts to hear this music. And he cares, he deeply cares, and he's looking at his world around him, and he's going, How do we reach these people? How do I reach my friends? And then there's friends of mine who are walking away from the church, walking away from the Word of God, and he's writing profoundly. Wisdom, as far as I'm concerned, he, he said in a recent article, he said this. He, he, he sees two things, two things wrong with our world today. Only two. <laughs> the first is, we don't make friends like we used to. And the second is, he doesn't understand how it happened, but society has changed the definition of the word acceptance and exchanged it with the definition of endorsement. Regarding friendship, he says this, it's a lie that social media will make us less alone. Now we are all alone together. Rates of depression are on the rise, but many people who think they are depressed are actually suffering from loneliness. Loneliness is not the same thing as depression. It breaks my heart to see so many people hurting. But listen, we need real friends that we can talk to about real stuff face to face. That leads to my second thought about acceptance. I accept all of my friends just as they are no matter what they do or who they are or think they are. But I don't always endorse their decisions. True love and friendship sometimes means not endorsing them. I have friends who are abandoning their kids, cheating on their spouses, lost in addiction. Yet, listen, I accept them and I love them. But as a true friend... I tell them that they are wrong and they are harming themselves. A friend reminds them of who they are. Accepting, endorsing everyone and everything they do is actually not love. We need to remember that love is gentle, but love is also strong. So listen. Be a friend. Make a friend. And when it gets painful, remind yourself that this is the price of not being alone. And I love his concluding sentence. If friendship doesn't hurt, then you're not doing it right. Jesus said this. I'll leave you with this. Further on in the Gospel of Matthew, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life or her life for their friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Rock Church, let me encourage you this fall season, this week, let's go and invite everyone we know who is hurting, broken, uncertain, Suffering, Lonely, depressed, addicted, afraid, lost. That pretty much covers everyone we know, doesn't it? And let's invite them to just come and see or come and see again. And you come with them and you invite them into your home and you invite them into your community group. And then let's continue with them on this wondrous, amazing journey of discovering who Jesus is, what he has done and sharing in the many, many surprises that he will bring our way. Pray with me, would you?